We have a new report launching soon. It's a candid view of the very real challenges facing banks right now, from technology to new competitors to culture, and how they're all interlinked. We explain the intricacies of banking technology in simple terms, but without dumbing it down. And we give answers on the way forward. To get a link straight to your inbox as soon as it launches, please make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. That's Fintech in 5. And you can head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS subscribe to do that now. Hello and welcome to Under the Hood a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system, and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode seven of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sanket, the CEO of Synapse. How are you doing today, Sanket? I'm good, Simon. How are you doing? Really well. Good to see you again. Looks like it's uh, sunny where you are once again. Yeah, it's it's California, so quite quite sunny, which is nice. I just brought it up because we're in the UK and it's a sunny day. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got to take those moments where we can. Um, in our last show, we looked at cryptocurrency and stable coins, and we looked at how they're disrupting global money movement. But this week, uh, we're taking a look at our friend Card Issuance, how third-party providers are taking some of the stress out of card issuance, um, where the disruption is, um, and also how can things be better, faster, cheaper in the whole card space generally. So. To dive deeper into this, we're joined by some incredible guests. Uh, joining us today is Sean Puckerin, who's Chief Product Officer at Global Processing Services. Welcome to the show, Sean. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Alongside him, we also have Eduardo Volta, who's VP and Head of Fintechs over at MasterCard. Uh, welcome to the show, Eduardo. How are you doing? Thanks, Simon. I'm very good. How are you? Really, really well, thank you. Excited to talk about card issuing because, well, frankly, there's just so much to understand under the hood. Um, so let's dive right in. Eduardo, let's start with you. How does this actually work? What's the difference between MasterCard and a payments processor and a bank? Who who are all of these actors? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question, Simon. So let, let me just maybe start by saying, so what is MasterCard? So MasterCard is a global payment network. And, and our role in the in the ecosystem is to facilitate payment transaction, which usually involve a MasterCard account holder and a merchant, along with the financial institution that goes around it. So we are like the network that that brings all the players together. And, and really the value that we bring in the, in the in this ecosystem is to have a set of rules and a set of um, uh, application that applies to all of the player globally, no matter where, where the transaction is taking place. As long as you've got a MasterCard card, you know that the authorization, clearing and settlement of the transaction when you make a payment happens in exactly the same way globally. So that's really what MasterCard does together with all of the players in the ecosystem. That's a great jumping off point then to talk about a payments processor. Um, so what about GPS and payments processors, Sean? Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, the, the we, when we talk about cars, we often talk about the four-party model, but I think uh, I don't think it's been a four-party model for a long time. It's like a, a hundred-party model, right? So uh, there's lots of different players who can play in that in that process. And so GPS as is is an issuer processor sits on the issuing side. So, uh, you know, it manages the connection to the scheme 
for a bank or, or someone who is actually sort of delivering that card to you as a user. And so we sit between them and the, and the, uh, and the scheme to make sure that you can do those transactions, to receive those messages from the scheme like MasterCard when a transaction is made, and then we'll kind of authorize or not, uh, or pass that on to our customer to authorize or not. So we really sit between uh, the bank and the, and the scheme. Um, but there are also payment processes on the other side, which is uh, to the uh, to the merchant. And in that sense, that's like a, often um, a PSP is often the term used or an acquirer or often they're one and the same thing. And that's a payment service provider to the merchant. So you have to be pretty kind of uh, careful when you say payment processor because there's some that sit on the uh, on the card side, consumer side and some that sit on the merchant side. Yeah, worth unpacking. And when we're talking about card issuing, of course, we're talking much more on the, the consumer side. And then, Sankit, um, talk to me about how the space has, has changed a little bit. When I go make a, uh, a new company and I want to go build that company and I want to issue cards to my customers as an entrepreneur, uh, where do I? how do I get started? And what did that look like 10 years ago? And, and, and kind of how's it changed? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Ten years ago, essentially, uh, you had MasterCard, who was pretty much the messaging system, if you may. They're essentially building this network where um, anyone can transmit a message and post a transaction. So that's essentially what MasterCard's doing. Then you had processors, so people who would be capable of uh, uh, plugging into the MasterCard communications channel, if you may, and then interpret the signals that are being sent back and forth. Um, so those people sat two ways. Uh, they, they sat on the side of somebody swiping a card. So that is the issuer. Um, the other one ended up being the acquirer, which is someone who is going to transmit the signal through MasterCard to the issuer. So the idea being, you're going to take your card to a restaurant, you're going to swipe it. As you swipe it and pretty much an acquirer processor is going to send that signal through MasterCard to whoever issued the card to the customer, which would then be accepted by an issuer processor who will then forward that signal to the bank. Now, 10 years ago, nothing has changed in this fundamentally even today, but 10 years ago, the customers of issuer processors and acquirer processors were uh, a core banking systems on one side, because essentially they had to plug into the bank's core to be able to uh, impact the balance, uh, give the customer visibility into them creating a transaction and so on. And for acquirers, it used to be point of sale terminals. So people who were building point of sale software or hardware where cards would be swiped. What has changed now is it turns out uh, banks have just become a sponsoring entity, but the actual customers are fintech companies that are trying to issue cards to their customers. So now for an issuer processor, they're not per se going to a core banking software. They're not even per se going to a partner bank. They're essentially going to a fintech company and saying, we, we know you have a group of customers that would love to get a card from you. We can enable this. While a lot of Transformations happened on the acquiring side as well, and, and a lot of the economy has moved online. So you're seeing less partnerships, if you may, between point-of-sale hardware vendors and acquirers. But a lot of acquirers are essentially enabling developers and who have you to be able to just submit a transaction to the MasterCard network and then send it to an issuer processor and so on and so forth. So the landscape's evolved a whole lot since then. 
I think that's an important point is is we've always got banks behind the scenes. We've got the these core networks that connect all of those banks together, whether it's the buyers or the sellers. Above that, we've got specialists that have been around for some time, but uh, you know are really changing the game in terms of payments processes who connect either the banks or somebody else into those payments rails, into the visas, the MasterCards of the world. And then above that, we're also starting to get uh, either the payments processes themselves or these new specialists. Specialists provide developer-friendly APIs that modern software engineers can can deeply understand, and I think that's really, really powerful and worth unpacking. So, is that um, what disruption has that really caused, Sean? Because I know you're a veteran of having seen a lot of the fintech movement in the UK. And what, what do you think about as as you look at more close to home, the last five years, and what's what's really started to change? Yeah, I think, you know, so I mean, think it's absolutely right in terms of how that kind of unbundling has happened. And I think, you know, so now that the the bank doesn't have to be the provider of the tech stack, you, that's just liberated, you know, lots of players to get into there and offer, you know, these services that we're used to, but in lots of different ways that can be consumed by different actors. And so it can be really simple stuff like, one, the fact that the, the, a company like GPS will actually work with a, a, a new bank or a new player in the way that traditional banks may not have done because, you know, it didn't make sense on the balance sheet. Whereas for smaller players and for different actors, you know, there's a much greater incentive to work with, with smaller companies. And then the, what those smaller companies wanted to do, they wanted greater flexibility. They wanted more control over the experience that they were having with cards, with whatever. And so at its simplest point, that that was, you know, features that we now take for granted, like being able to freeze a card, unlock a card via an app, right? If you give developers an API to be able to do that, they'll put it in the app. You know, suddenly you've got a, a compelling consumer proposition. But, you know, that was the beginning. You know, now if you just take every element of a card and think about if I turn this into an API, a switch that a developer could control, you know, what are the really interesting use cases that I can then apply to that? And that's what you're starting, that's, that's what you see now is that yeah, that's been taken to you know, lots of different places to do lots of different things. And so, yeah, we kind of all think about the kind of consumer propositions, but, you know, it's 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 thinking of card as a technology vehicle that can be used for lots of different, uh, you know, aspects of purchasing payments, you know, and, and, and reporting and fraud and all of those things. So suddenly all that metadata, all that data that you're collecting around a payment, all the things you can do with the payment are exploded and can be leveraged in lots of different ways. And that's, you know, re- so so players like GPS have just enabled, uh, you know, uh, all of those players to think about how they might use that data. And as a result, we've seen you know, a massive explosion in the types of services that have been now being offered to businesses and consumers. And I think that's interesting. I mean, Sankat, in previous episodes, we've had folks like GigWage. If we think about Donut, we think about some of these companies that are doing new things for the consumer with uh, with the fact that they are now able to issue a card. So talk to me about timeline. Like if, if five, 10 years ago, I wanted to get a card into market, what was I looking at? And as an entrepreneur, what could I, what could I reasonably achieve today? Yeah. Um, so a, another piece to issuing a card is there are multiple components involved to be able to make that happen, right? Like the most common one being a core system of record, right? Like even because now you're unbundling them, they're not coming in together anymore. Um, so historically, which is what we'll call the first wave of fintechs, it took you anywhere between 12 to 18 months to be able to put all of this together and really get to market. Um, and now we're seeing those timelines shrink down to about six weeks. Um, so people can essentially go live um, with a card issuance product in as quickly as six weeks. And the irony is the slowest part ends up being customizing and printing the plastic or the metal, 
So it's not the software anymore. It's essentially the the metal or the plastic that you're trying to ship. Uh, um, manufacturing that and refining that takes the longest time, not even putting together the software components. And that's it. It's it's putting all of those, uh, yeah. It, it's, it just can be remarkably complex if you're not, uh, not, not able to put all those together in quite the same way. Eduardo, as you look at this, where do you think the majority of the disruption is happening? Is it closer to the customer? Is it happening in the technology? What, what, where is the disruption? Yeah, Simon, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I, I really believe that I work with all of the fintech in the UK, and I do believe that the disruption comes from both sides. It comes in the plumbing or under the hood, as we are discussing, and it comes on the front end for the customer as well. So when you think about the front end uh, customer experience, think about what the fintechs have delivered to customers. They they are able to create frictionless experience in app in a very user-friendly environment, which did not exist five to 10 years ago. So payments have really evolved on, on the, in the space. Think about the Apple uh, or the Google or the Samsung wallet. All of these type of payments are direct consumer experience, which have changed the way we pay. However, I don't think innovation stops there. This is the one that what we see, but there is a lot of innovation that happens in the back end. And when you think about the fintech, I mean, Sankit was, was referring to it. When you think about the fintech, they want to issue cards. Most of the time, they are, they are coming with great consumer proposition. They have wonderful idea, great UX experience, but they don't necessarily want to deal with the hassle and the administration that goes with the actual issuing of the card. And the, 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 the dealing with the schemes like MasterCard. So there are companies which are banking as a service or being sponsor provider who can provide the taxes. And what we've seen, uh, and, and, and on one end, there has been sponsorship, and then there are the processor, like GPS, who obviously help providing the taxes as well. What we've seen is those companies really leaping forward from a technology perspective in, in, in the last five to, to 10 years incredibly. And they've really developed their technology in order to be able to provide new solutions to customers like installments, the ability to tokenize a card, the ability to de- deliver digital issuance. So really, when it comes to disruption, I think we are seeing it both in the front end, but definitely also in the plumbing and in the, in the back end of the customers. Wow. So it's coming from both sides, Sean. And what does that actually mean? Um, are we seeing uh, this disruption really change outcomes for consumers? Are you seeing, you know, what, what, does it, what does it mean in terms of for the entrepreneur as well? Yeah, so I think, I think we absolutely are, but also we've got a long way to go as well. I think um, the, you know, the unbundling and the, and the rebundling of services is happening not just in card issuance, but it's also that in combination with lots of other services like fraud, like KYC, uh, all of those things. And you add all those things together, and that's really enabled the fintechs to produce just much, much better user experiences for customers. So, you know, the ability to sign up for an account, you know, through an app, you know, directly, I get my account straight away, I get my card straight away, you know, I can have a virtual card in my wallet, you know, it, literally within you know, 10 minutes of downloading the app. And so that's a much, much better experience than anyone had before, you know, the, 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 the these all these players came together to provide an ecosystem that could then be recombined in the ways that the, that the ultimate front-end bank has kind of delivered to customers. And I think, you know, it's really easy to kind of be cynical about, you know, these things, but actually all of those things added up has produced a much better experience. And not only has it driven a better experience 
in the for the fintechs, but you know the banks had to take notice of this too. The big banks have, have all had to up their game as a result of these things being available, and so you know the end consumer has benefited massively in just getting a much better banking product uh, off the back of all of these things. That's just the consumer side. On on other sides, you know, I like I say I think we're seeing some really interesting things in terms of using card as a technology vehicle for lots of different uh, other reasons. Cards. You know, major advantage over all the different kind of new payment methods that we see in the world is acceptance. And so, you know, leveraging that ability to accept a card whilst combining that with all these other things like crypto, like open banking, all these things, these all these things can be complementary, but card can be that really amazing conduit to acceptance that, that um, you know, that, that we, that, that really is, is a, a hugely powerful thing and is the thing that's often hardest to achieve in a payments product. I'm interested, Sankey, in your views on on that point uh, in terms of like why card is is so central to entrepreneurs and why it's become so flexible in, in the last sort of twelve to eighteen months. Yeah, I think um, the most interesting thing that comes with the card is not just the interchange rails, but pretty much a ubiquitous acceptance mechanism, right? Like. Um, which you don't get with most payment processes or protocols now. Um, it's cumbersome to make a wire from one country to another or from one individual to another. Same with bank-to-bank transfers. But there are almost very few merchants um, that do not accept a card payment. There are very few forms of commerce where you cannot use a card. Um, so the best way to be able to get your customer engaging with you at every step of the way is convince them to put their disposable cash with you and then have them spend it as they're going about their day. And that's the only way you can really get that kind of experience today ends up being with some kind of a card product, nothing else. So that's one of the big reasons most fintechs are so eager and interested in getting a card in because it's the most profound way of building an engagement mechanism with their product or service. Mm. Uh, Eduardo, what are you seeing from your perspective? Is it that engagement thing that's uh, that's really, really powerful and, and, and why cards have become so central? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with Sankit. I think what this everyday engagement, if you think about how many times we pull out a car product or, a, or a, now a wallet to pay, uh, there is there are very few products that create that regular engagement between the provider and the consumer. And so it, it, for, for companies who want to enter, uh, enter into car space, it's a great way to build trust and create this regular interaction. There is also another element, which is also card issuance is also sometimes a natural progression for some, some player who, who are pro, uh, providing solution in the financial services space and card becomes an additional revenue stream and an additional service that they can provide to their customer. So when you look at it, we are seeing a lot of players actually uh, either entering the, the, the world of financial services with, with payments and with cars like Curve, Monzo, Moniz, and some of them moving into it, like Wise. Wise started from money transfer and then they moved into card. But certainly we are seeing it as a, as a, as a good way for companies to deepen that engagement with the customers. Interesting. Um, let's do some um, definitions and go another layer under the hood now, Sean, and talk about um, things like bin sponsorship and program managers. Uh, you know, what, what are all of these terms? Because like, they, it sounds so jargon heavy, but why are those things important? 
Yeah, and uh, I, I say as an industry, we're pretty guilty of often overloading those terms as well, right? So, well, one person's definition might be slightly different to another's. But um, yeah, so uh, to go on to your question, a bin sponsor is is um, a, a generally a, a, a principal member of the scheme. So they've signed up to all the regulation and requirements that the schemes you know put on them to, uh, sorry, and the scheme being Visa or Mastercard. Visa or Mastercard. Yeah, apologies. Yep, thank you for calling me out on that. Good point. Uh, or JCB or CUP or uh, you know there are many of them, um, uh, but the main ones are Mastercard and, and, and Visa. Um, and so yeah, they they've set regulations as to who could be part of their network, and that principally means that they they have uh, accounts that they set up uh, that are you know managed in a certain way, and that's quite an onerous um, you know uh, responsibility. Um, and and it should be because you know these are the people who are ultimately handling you know customers' funds, selling. To, to 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 Mastercard and Visa, and so um, now what we've seen is that the you know the the fintechs that have come along you know have not necessarily been able or wanted to or could at that particular point in time go through that whole process and kind of wanted to get something up and running. So a bin sponsor is a company that uh, you know manages all of those rules, but then signs up a fintech uh, to then manage their accounts for them on that on that basis and provides a platform for them to manage that that account. And so they've been you know, the the advent of bin sponsorship has been you know, really fundamental to that explosion of fintech players because it's enabled a whole set of companies to enter to the market that otherwise wouldn't have, but done so in a way that, you know, from a regulatory point of view, customers' money is still protected. You know, it's still it's still a, a really, um, you know, kind of well-focused way of, of providing that service. And so, um, you know, you, you'll often hear, uh, you know, issuing bank kind of used in the same sort of things. It's all the same thing. It's just the, the, the bin sponsorship is the bank that you're, that you're with. And so when you sign up for a fintech uh, company, Often you'll see in small print on the card there is like this card has actually been issued by XYZ. That's the that's the bin sponsor issuing bank that sat behind the service that you're offering. Um, you, what you other thing you'll see and, and the, the one of the things that that you know we've definitely seen in the UK quite a lot is you know bin sponsorships have been great and they provide a really good service to customers. Some companies you know like a Curve or someone you know gets to a certain size and and uh, uh, you know kind of successfulness that that um, they then want to become a principal member of the schemes themselves and so they kind of migrate from being a bin sponsor to being a full bank themselves. And I think again that 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 progression of companies as they go through that again has been a real trait that we've seen. Um, through the last sort of five, 10 years. It is interesting, isn't it? How as the company grows, it's able to take on more of the responsibility itself. But by having somebody that could handle that initially, they were able to grow in the first place. Yeah, um, absolutely. Eduardo, talk to me about the role of a program manager, because I think that's that may or may not be the same thing, but it's a slightly different role. Yeah, it, it is a slightly different role, and and I, I I would like to start maybe with a with a personal uh, personal story, which is when I took over this role three years ago, my learning curve into all of these world of sponsorship program has been really steep because it is quite a complex ecosystem, and and we often now take it for granted when we speak, but actually there are different roles to play. So I would say the program manager, it re- it really depends. So. The program manager is really the, the 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 entity that could either sit between the being sponsor and the actual fintech issuer, or it could be taken the a role that could be taken on by either of the two. And the program manager really uh, um, uh, refers to the management of the customer, so providing the interface to the customer uh, on uh, in order to interact with the, with their car program. It means managing all of the the controls and the and the the sort of alerts that you want to put on the card. So it's really that 
program manager type of role where, where you of the of the type of solution that you're providing to 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 the customer to the ultimate customer often with the way we've seen in the uk it varies as i said but often we see the fintech taking on that project program manager uh, um, responsibility themselves from the very beginning. So Monzo, for example, when they launch, they they launch their their apps and they they the apps was the 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 part they control and the the tap was the program management part of the of the whole piece. Sometimes though, we've got a third party doing program management on behalf of the fintech. So it's really it really depends on how much control the fintech want to take of their supply chain from the beginning. I love that point. And uh, Sanke, I mean, we've talked in the past about how much control do you want to take? And and I guess, um, how much control should somebody take? And, and does that answer vary in, throughout the life cycle? Very much so. Very much. Yeah, I think... Uh... It does vary. I think it, it really goes down to what product and service you're trying to provide to your customer. Um, and for that, how much work do you have to do? Um, I found I found it rarely to be true for a fintech company to say, I want to do everything uh, just for the <laughs> sake of it. Like there's almost always a need for it. Um, so the thing that we see fintech companies care deeply about is owning the customer experience. How do they interface and interact with their customers? And then their, their product experience. So anything that is going to get in the way of enhancing that to their vision, they will probably want to own it themselves over time, right? So if that means uh, an issuer processor is unable to provide or accommodate a certain feature or functionality that is really core uh, to whatever vision the fintech company has, then it might mean they have to go and be an issuer processor themselves. In some cases, it might be... um, um, I haven't seen that happen a whole lot after a couple of attempts on card manufacturing, but we've seen some fintech companies even take on manufacturing the card themselves because their vision was combining a bunch of cards together and so on. So it really depends, but I think it always stems from uh, what experience do we want our customers to have? And then from there, go back and figure out how much does that have to be built by us versus something that we can just buy from the market. I think that's a great point. And actually, when you talk about um, your own card production facility, I mean, Sean, that was a reality for a lot of banks at one point in history. And and now, as it's become more and more modular, more and more of this has been gone to specialists. Um, what are some of those other things like card production that you have to sort of think about that sit around the core money movement? You know, I hear terms like disputes and chargebacks and fraud. There's all There's a few things there to unpack. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, and, and I think you're absolutely right. So, so you know, a bank would have done all of these things themselves, and many still do, uh, you know, uh, sort of you know, 10, 20 years ago. And if you take each one of those things and unpack them, there's a business there that can offer value and, and add, add its service. So, yeah, I think, you know, one of the, one of the we, we talked a little bit earlier about what are the benefits of card and, and disputes and chargebacks is absolutely one of those as well. So it's one of the few payment methods that has a built-in method to challenge the payment. Uh, and so that's an extremely valuable thing in lots of circumstances. It's extremely valuable for consumers. Uh, in if they bought something uh, and that service isn't provided, then they have a mechanism to go uh, and say, look, that, that they can complain to their bank and say that, that, that didn't happen. And so there is a organized and process with APIs and data that flows between all the players in the uh, in, in the ecosystem to say, I'm charging this payment and that goes through MasterCard and then goes through through to the acquirer and then the acquirer tries to then um, resolve that dispute with the merchant. And if they can't, 
can't, then depending on the type of product, you may get your money back or you may be able to kind of uh, you know, receive some funds or, or have uh, a way to, to challenge that transaction in other means. That's that's actually pretty rare in a payment vehicle. And, and it's a really interesting thing and, and unique thing about cards. And it's only really enabled by the fact that you know we have these networks like MasterCard that that, that, that happens. I think you know, the other thing you mentioned is fraud and that kind of goes hand in hand with that. So um, you know, with, with any transaction, with any trade of value, there's always the chance that the, the one of the actors is bad. And so, you know, we try and use the data that's that's there as far as the transaction goes to be able to track whether that's true or not. This is, you know, one of the, you know, card fraud is, 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 is pretty low for a payment method in the fact that there are already many mechanisms in place to try and keep that low, but we always want to get it lower. And I think, you know, this, um, one of the things that's really exploded and it continues to explode over the next, you know, over the, over the last five years and will continue to do so is because we're just gathering so much more data about each transaction, the more those sophisticated those fraud tools can be. And so again, you see emergence of a whole range of specialist companies who are active in this area to really help, you know, fintechs and schemes really understand what's going on here um and i think you know we'll, and the fintechs have been a key enabler of that right so you know the difference between you know a car that was going on a pos machine 10 15 years ago was that you got some information about the the, the merchant and the, the bank now you've got an app that's got location information that's got uh, lots of other ambient data as we call it it's a data that can be collected around that transaction you've got the same for the merchant and so all these different factors really help us you know narrow in and uh, understand fraud and then we've got much more sophisticated tools to kind of look at that data so machine learning all of those kind of things so if you think of a poor bank trying to do that 10 years ago now you need you know uh, you know having a specialist company that can do that with all the access to the cloud technologies that they that have available today be able to analyze that data at scale you know the these things are you know, each one of the each line item on that on that kind of what it takes is a whole business that can specialize uh, and become you know very valuable as a result of that it's interesting that um it the effort required to set up your own card production facility to build a fraud engine to build a risk engine to build the disputes and chargebacks to put a team in place like it's her and it's incredible but if you put all of that together and you're just doing it for your own customers your ability to change that is what it is um, and if you've got enough scale maybe you get really really good at it um, but can you change all of the things all of the time and I love that point Sean about the emergence of these niche specialists who make up a piece of the stack how much are you seeing that Eduardo in, in your own work I guess you sort of see a lot as you look at the issuing world how important are these specialists yeah, very important. That's the short answer. Very, very important. I mean, we are seeing an enormous number of players that are focusing on specific niches, like, like Sean was saying, and, and they are becoming uh, real specialist providers um, to, 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 to address specific customer needs. So you take a company like Ethica, which Mastercard bought um, a couple of years and a year and a half ago, they were f- focusing on, on fraud and chargeback. So how do we reduce fraud and chargeback? And to your point, Simon, some of those areas are so uh, are quite complex in its own. We, we, we define them under a big umbrella of payment, but some of these niche areas can be quite complex. And so having those specialist niche players uh, focusing on those helps uh, the, the the ecosystem get better at, at managing those points, and also the the, the the last point I want to make is if you are as a, a, a new fintech starting, like Sankit was saying, think about you cannot think about everything yourself. So partnership becomes so important. Finding the right company that can help you deliver on some of those needs 
it's it's even more important than for a bigger player. And then as you as you as you scale, you decide then which part you want to insource and take control of and which part you continue partnership on. I think that sort of who do you pick and why, Sanke, is a really interesting question. Uh, how do you think about that, given when you talk to entrepreneurs? What what do you think about as being the main reasons you would pick one specialist, another specialist? And, and how do you rebundle all of that? Because now there's there's hundreds of these things. Yeah, I, I'm probably the only one here that, that actually thinks uh, uh, too many specialists, probably not a good idea, um, because that essentially ends up increasing your overhead and cost which means it like translates that down to your end customers. And I think one thing uh, we've been always sensitive of is increasing the cost per customer, because if you do that, then you cannot really democratize financial products because people who have less money kind of become expensive for you. Um, so here's, here's how I would recommend uh, picking specialists. There are certain things, um, again, one goes down to your customer experience, right? Like for anything that you're being given, uh, let's say you go to Synapse or you go to some other provider and they're they're kind of giving you a base capability of everything. Um, does that really get you to the user experience that you're really, really wanting to build? Um, in most cases, the answer is yes, because um, uh, to Sean's point, like there are a lot of other hooks being built on top of this because now developers can decide at the time of transition, uh, uh, at the time of a transaction, if something needs to be honored or not, how should it be funded, what kinds of notifications should be sent to the users. So a lot of the user experience stuff is kind of getting streamlined and you can by and large get an off-the-shelf issuer processor and just build the right experience. Uh, the piece and the second piece where uh, you want to pick uh, uh, specialists end up be, ends up being things that would actually cost you uh, um, like unbudgeted amount of cash. So it's essentially fraud, right? So uh, because every single uh, fintech company in their own regard is still an experiment because a lot of these things are changing so quickly that how people try to abuse the system is also evolving very rapidly. So it almost always pays dividends to find a specialist in that area uh, and then just have them work with you in owning it and managing that. Um, and then the other thing, the third vector in this ends up being things that are just so low stakes, you don't want to own and manage yourself. Uh, in most cases, disputes, management and chargebacks and all of those end up being that piece in itself. So usually you're like making decisions around these three variables. Uh, one is your user experience. One ends up being kind of like things that are just outside of your core expertise, but can cost a lot of money that you haven't budgeted for. And the third piece ends up being things that are so low stakes and you just don't care about building those yourself. I like that um, framework for how you decide what to specialize in and what you don't. That's super helpful. And if you're a builder or an operator right now, I can imagine you applying that day to day. I think the other terminology that comes up a lot, uh, Eduardo, is is prepaid credit and debit. So do we want to just separate those three out because they are slightly different animals? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, um, so maybe let, let's start by, by, by I'm picking what do this mean? So we... So we define uh, maybe in, to, to simplify prepay debit and credit as pay early, pay now, and pay later. If 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 to make it a bit more consumer friendly, so I would say uh, uh, prepaid. Obviously, you you put the funds in and then you spend them when you need. Debit is you should you spend them immediately. So it's uh, it's whatever funds you've got available you can spend. And credit is is a way to delay the payment through uh, a, a revolve functionality or an installment 
months or, or whatever. I think when you when you look at those um, those three products, they uh, have very different level of of uh, challenging, but also very different level of risks. And that's why I would say probably when you look at the, the the entry level for a lot of this fintech in the payment space, they enter with a prepaid or maybe a debit card, which uh, allows them to have a defined set of funds that the, the user can spend, but doesn't enter into the complexity of providing credit to a customer. That doesn't mean that we don't have play, a player entering the credit market straight away, but in order to enter the credit market, the, the requirements are different, both from a regulatory perspective, it, you, you are required to have a credit license and the ability to issue credit, but also from an operational perspective, the a credit issuing platform and the requirements that go with it are much more complex and, and a, and a bit more uh, more challenging than a prepaid or a debit functionality. Interesting. Sean, anything to add on that? And what's the general shift? Because it's kind of been moving over time, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And I think, you know, the, um, so it was, as you right, prepaid was the easiest vehicle from a regulatory and you know, complexity point of view to, to kind of get going with. And I think what's important to recognise is that that's good enough for some propositions, right? So not every proposition has to make its way through that journey. Some propositions are perfectly uh, fine with a with a prepaid solution. Um, but, you know, as as the sort of larger fintechs kind of got more sophisticated and their customers got more sophisticated and they had to add more features, then they progressed along, along that line. You know, there are real advantages to all of those products. Products, but it's about you know as Sanke has, has kind of continually said it's about what's your proposition what's your customer after and therefore then what's the best vehicle uh, to address that um the other thing to consider is is that those those different vehicles um can have different regulatory um uh frameworks around them per country and so it depends on which territory which country you're going to as to whether a prepay a credit or a debit card kind of uh, is the right solution and, and it can be different in different countries even for a relatively similar account and product yeah, that's a really important point. Sankit, what do you think from a trend perspective? I've certainly observed quite a few more um, credit card as a service things popping up lately. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, um, pretty much. I think um, uh, let's just call it like credit as a service um, is probably going to be like the next, next big thing. Um, and the interesting thing is not all credit products uh, inherently are more more risky from a financial perspective. Some of them are, some of them are not. Um, there are some products that, that that consumers can secure themselves. Uh, while if you're if you're giving people access to credit, then that definitely becomes a little more risky for you. But I see over the course of the next like two years, um, if not sooner, most neo banking debit programs will be converted into a credit program. Like there would not be a lot of debit programs anymore. I think it's also you know, worth noting that you know, whilst fintechs have been extremely successful, they you know, maybe in terms of pure revenue and profits, that hasn't been kind of the the thing that they've absolutely sort of blown the doors off. And so, um, your credit is a way of uh, you know achieving revenue from your customers. And so, you know, I think as as the pressure uh, sort of increases on 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 the fintechs to you know, be profitable, then credit is an obvious place for them to to occupy. Yeah, in some cases, it could be twice as much in revenue than than debit. So uh, definitely extremely, extremely lucrative comparatively. And I think that was going to be the the last thing I was going to ask you to touch on, Sankey. It was like the economic trade-offs of prepaid versus debit versus credit. It feels like at least what I'm hearing is prepaid 
possibly on the like lower regulatory burden, possibly less good economics. Debit somewhere in the middle, especially if you're in the US, it seems, with, with the Durban Amendment, uh, and then credit sort of potentially more profitable, but also in, mo- in many cases a higher regulatory burden. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we can we can break it down even more. Um, so when you talk about uh, essentially debit, what you're talking about is like customers have funds sitting in their account and then they can spend it. So the biggest thing you have to worry about is from a consumer rec perspective is funds availability. You cannot restrict access uh, uh, of consumers to their fr- funds and you cannot charge them fees that you haven't disclosed to them. Um, now, as you as you go into credit, uh, you start also have to you have to start worrying about uh, uh, was there an adverse impact, not even an adverse action. Which means is it is there some some mechanism or flaw in my underwriting criteria that might lead to an adverse impact? For instance, there mm-hmm. might be like some strange thing um, that by and large uh, votes people uh, uh, on a on a lower scale, if they if they live in I don't know Harlem, right? So um, yeah, um, so things like that, and then you start kind of having to worry about those. Then then there are other aspects to credit, which are uh, uh, some fees are too much, so you have to charge people fees lower than what the state usury uh, laws are, and so on and so forth. So it's just like it's some additional obligations on 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 consumer protection that gets added when you're doing. Uh, in APR-based credit program that you don't have otherwise. It's interesting. It gets a little tricky, um, but you can potentially make more profit. And I think that's a great point that often uh, entrepreneurs don't go building something thinking about the negative outcomes for their customers. But actually, especially with credit, you have to really think through potential negative outcomes and, and manage all of that. Thinking through unhappy paths is, is really, really key. Uh, we are almost out of time. Can you believe it's, it's shot by? Um, so I'm going to ask each of you for 30 seconds as what happens next. Where's card issuing going, Eduardo? What's your, what's your answer to that? So for me, I think we will see more and more digital first cards. So cards in the digital wallet. wallet. However, I think physical cards remain popular for a large proportion of consumers. And we, what we are going to see is innovation in the card form factor. So we are seeing cards being issued with recycled plastic. We are seeing experimentation in the car space. So while digital will continue growing, cards will still have a, a part to play. Interesting. Sean? Uh, yeah, I, I've said it a few times. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of like uh, this term, this kind of cardless technology vehicle. I think you know we still haven't seen the the full extent of that. So um, you know, wherever a payment is made, um, actually issuing one thing we haven't talked about is issuing a virtual card. Um, and so you know that's you know, that's already hugely you know, a powerful vehicle that we see used a lot. But that can be used in more and more industries. So we see it in travel today. But you know, uh, for, for any kind of business to business payment, why not use a one time virtual card for insurance payouts for you know, so seeing card issuance kind of work its way into more and more of the payment channel because it's such a useful technology vehicle to be able to kind of power any type of payment in a really controlled and, and secure way. So rather than just thinking these things as a one-off bit of plastic that I keep for two years, it's that instant virtual card that can be used uh, for, for any transaction. Powerful. Um, Sankit, what happens next? Yeah, um, so... I'll kind of answer that with what's next in banking is essentially global banking. So just giving everyone access to banking in a much more refined way and all digital. Um, and the first 
uh, payment vehicle that's actually going to go ubiquitous global is going to be card issuance. Uh, so you, um, what's in the future over the course of the next couple of years is more and more use cases of multi-currency settlements on a Visa or MasterCard bin. Uh, because what you're going to start seeing issuers do is offer the same bin uh, to customers across multiple countries at the same time. So that's probably what's next. Wow. Bin being bank identification number as in bin sponsor. So the regulated entity we talked about earlier, that's some next level stuff. We hit 201 there, but I'm, I'm happy to, um, and I'm excited for that because that global money movement is is still way too hard and way too expensive. So, and it always feels like the, there's innovation that the MasterCard types of the world do that then the ecosystem can kind of pick up on. So super powerful stuff. That brings us to the end of the episode, believe it or not. Um, next week, we're lifting the on innovation and typically why incumbent banks have found that quite so hard. We really hope you can join us for that discussion. Um, thank you so much to our guests. Uh, Sean, where can people find out more about you? Uh, so, well, uh, I know about global processing at globalprocessing.net, uh, but myself, I'm at Pat Krina at Twitter. Uh, that's probably the easiest place to find me. Brilliant. Eduardo? Uh, for me, the easiest way is LinkedIn. You can find me at Eduardo Valda and Mastercard LinkedIn. Fantastic. And thank you. Yeah, um, you can find Synapse at SynapseFI, same handle on LinkedIn or Twitter, or my first name if you want to find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And remember to search for 11FS, 11FS.com, uh, and all of your favorite podcasts are available either Fintech Insider or, of course, Under the Hood uh, on your favorite podcast client. Um, do remember to tell everyone you know about this podcast as well. Pass the word along. Uh, it really helps us if you'd leave us a review. Um, and do check out the other reviews that are already there. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.